All right. <laughs> well, I am really excited to be going into this sermon series today. If you were here last week, you know that we as a congregation have taken on a New Year's resolution. Uh, that is to say, the elders and I took on a New Year's resolution for what the congregation, uh, what we believe God is calling this congregation to be. And it's actually what he's always been calling every congregation to be, but we really want to focus on one particular part of that this year, which is being a people who love our neighbors. So we are starting an emphasis on that that will be, you will find in our sermons, you will find in our small groups and in our sermon-based small groups, which go along with that. And the goal here is to form us into a congregation of people who love our neighbors. Now, hear me clearly when I say that, a congregation of people who love our neighbors, which is different than a congregation that loves your neighbors for you. Right? Sometimes what we want is we want a church where we can, that will put on events that will love our neighbors for us. This is not taking on a bunch more events. This is equipping us to be people who love our neighbors. And what we're going to do with the sermon series, we're going to start by, by focusing in on a particular passage in the Gospels where Jesus really digs into the meat of what it means to be commanded to love our neighbors. Now, originally, that was going to be a one-sermon, uh, a one-off, and then we were going to go into Genesis. Uh, but as I, the, the sermon grew and grew until I realized this actually needs to be a three-sermon series. So we're going to spend three weeks on the parable of the Good Samaritan and what that teaches us about the command to love our neighbors. And then we're going to go into Genesis, and we're going to follow Abraham and his family and their adventures in loving their neighbors. You'll understand why we're going to Genesis by the time we get there. But today, I want us to start by digging into this passage that answers, answers a couple of questions for us. The first question it answers for us is, why are we focusing on loving our neighbors? Where does that come from? But the second question that it's going to answer is, who is my neighbor? Who are we talking about when we say that we should love our neighbors? Next week, we're going to, say, we're going to talk about what does it mean to love our neighbors, and then on the third week, we're going to talk about what is the goal of loving our, loving our neighbors. What is it meant to accomplish? What does it do in our world? So today we're going to start out in this parable, in this story. It's a conversation that Jesus has with a religious lawyer, a lawyer, an expert in the law of Moses. And it begins this way. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, this is the opening question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for us, we typically will think of that question in a very narrow way. When we ask that question, we mean, what do I got to do to get into the good place rather than the bad place? Because we're very used to that way of thinking. And especially for the last five, 600 years, that's been kind of our laser focus on that question. What is, and it's usually, what is the bare minimum I have to do to get into the good place? So I can check that box and know that I'm getting in. That's not quite what this gentleman is getting at. Because the word for eternal life, that word eternal in Greek, it doesn't just mean a length of time, uh, a quantity of life. It actually means a quality of life as well. So you could translate it life of the age, meaning the age to come. So it's a kind of life that lasts forever. And so to fill out that question, he's really asking, what do I need to do in order to be a part of what God is doing in the world to live the kind of life that is going to last forever? Because not every kind of life lasts forever. Only certain kinds of life will continue in God's kingdom. 
And so that's the question that he's asking. What kind of life will last forever? What do I have to do to have that? And so Jesus answers his question. In, I had professors who did this, and the most frustrating thing, he answers it with his own question. It's like he wants him to learn or something instead of just handing him answers. What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And this man gives us a surprising answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I say that's surprising because most of us give Jesus credit for coming up with that answer. In a lot of the books that I've read, they talk about how Jesus was the one who made this radical connection between loving God and loving your neighbor, and that those two are the key commands to the whole law. Jesus did not come up with that. It was not his idea. This guy came up with it on his own. We have record of other Jewish rabbis saying the same thing. This was a a perspective that people had, and Jesus had every reason to think that this man was going to give him that response. So this is something that the Jews were aware of, that they would typically pick out these two commands. And they they seem kind of randomly placed in in the law, but they're actually very important in the way the law is structured. The first one, uh, sorry, and then Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So these two commands are apparently the right answer. The first one he picks out comes from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now this is part of a prayer called the Shema that uh, Moses is giving the people. He tells them, meditate on this constantly. And so this is a prayer that has been said by Jews ever since, at least three times a day. Up to the present day, they say these words every day. And so it makes sense that those would be very important to the law, that keeping the law, first and foremost, means loving God with your heart, your soul, and your strength. The other one seems to be a little bit buried somewhere in Leviticus, Uh, and we're not really familiar with it in the Old Testament, typically. We're mainly just familiar with Jesus saying it. We often think that Jesus wrote it, but he didn't. In Leviticus 19.18, everybody's favorite chapter of Leviticus, right? Anybody have a different favorite chapter of Leviticus? No? Very partial to 17. 16 is the Day of Atonement. I know that one. Uh, It says, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the way we read books, that seems to be buried in a random place. But actually, if you look at it, it's in the, that verse is kind of in the middle of that, conceptually, it's in the middle of that chapter. And that chapter, conceptually, is in the middle of that book. And that book is in the middle of the Law of Moses. And so this verse, in many ways, is the peak of the Law of Moses. So it would have stood out to the Jews. And so he says, these are the two commands that you have to keep. If you, he says, in my opinion, you've got to love God, you've got to love your neighbor in order to be living the kind of life that lasts forever, the kind of life that God, that is a part of God's kingdom. And Jesus says, no, no, you're saved by grace, not by faith. No, he actually says, yeah, no, you're right. That's right. That's the essence of, of eternal life. Which is interesting, that challenges us that Jesus validates this command, these commands, as being essential to the life of a follower of of God. And sometimes we'll dismiss that by saying, no, 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 that's an Old Testament thing. Um, For Christians, those are suggestions, right? That's Old Covenant. Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't come back yet. So that's, that's law for them, guidelines for us, right? Except that the, the command to love your neighbor comes up more in the New Testament after the resurrection than it does before. 
For instance, Paul, the one who most famously says we're saved by grace uh, through faith, not by works lest any man should boast, also says in Galatians, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why should you love your neighbor as yourself? Because it fulfills the law. And fulfilling the law is apparently a good thing, that we want to be the kinds of people that God has called us to be and instructed us to be. So even in the New Testament, according to Jesus, from the mouth of Jesus, from the mouth of Paul, later we'll see from the mouth of, of, or at least the pen of James, that this is a core part of what it means to be God's people. You love God and you love your neighbors. So to be part of, God's, of Jesus' kingdom, you must love God and your neighbor. Now, I'm not trying to deny the role of grace. Obviously, grace is essential. None of us get in unless Jesus, um, unless we're forgiven and unless uh, God shares his generosity with us. But grace should never be an excuse for us to dismiss the commands that we've been given. That's the main point I want to make. Grace is never an excuse to say that what God has told us to do doesn't matter. If he says this is what eternal life means, then we need to take that very, very seriously. Okay? So, to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, you must love your neighbor and love God and love your neighbor. But that doesn't satisfy this lawyer. For one of two reasons, it's going to say that he wanted to justify himself. So one of two things is happening. Either one, he wanted to prove that he's smarter than Jesus, and so he wanted to stump Jesus, and Jesus wasn't stumped. So he's going to try and ratchet it up further, up the difficulty. Or this lawyer was setting up a scenario where Jesus could set the rules, and then the lawyer could say, hey, I can check that box. I'm, I got eternal life. Done. Got it. Now I can move on to other things because I have... Check that box. So, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this reveals to you something about his mindset, the way he thinks, that he wants to know how to check the box. So his question is, how many people do I have to love? Jesus is going to teach him to ask a different question, but his question is, like, how many are we talking? Are we talking like, like, these kind of people are that like, who, who do I have to love? Which people do I have to love before I can check off the box? I've loved these people, I love my neighbor, and I'm done. That's the question that he's asking. So that's what we're going to dig into today. Who is my neighbor? And the reason we're going to dig into this today is because one of the things that I have realized as I've been studying, preparing for this emphasis that we're going through this year is that until recently, I would have answered this question wrong. I would have taken the exact wrong lesson from this parable. Because one of the things that happens is, as Christians, we often get into ruts of reading, generational ruts, where my parents read it this way, and my grandparents read it this way, and their grandparents read it this way, and, and we get really deep ruts as to how we're supposed to read something, and it can be hard for us to actually look at it with fresh eyes. It's one of the things that I try and do when I'm reading the Bible, is I try and look at things with fresh eyes, which usually means reading a, a from a lot of other people with different perspectives who have different ruts, because the truth is usually somewhere between the ruts. So what Jesus does to answer this question is he tells a story, which is another frustrating thing that teachers do. That's the three things that, I, that would frustrate me with teachers. They would answer with a question, they would answer with a story, or they would give me a reading list. Here, go read this book, then you'll know. Like, ah, I wanted you to tell me. Give me the cliff notes. Anyway, so he tells them a story, and here's the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
So, a man, a Jewish man, he's traveling between two Jewish cities. So he's a Jewish man going, and he gets attacked by robbers, beat up, left or dead on the side of the road. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Okay, a priest is a member of a specific family. You had to be a descendant of a specific family to be a priest. And so you were born for this job, and your job is to work in the temple, to perform the sacrifices, to stand in the presence of God on the behalf of the people, and then to go and stand in the presence of the people on behalf of God. It's a very important job, and we have no equivalent of it today. We don't have any job that's really that kind of priestly activity, and we don't have hereditary it would be like if your pastor's job was hereditary, only one family could do it, and they were actually the only one who could really be in God's presence on your behalf. Like, I had to go back there and take communion for you or something like that, you know? But it's, what it means is this guy is at the pinnacle of the religious establishment. This is the guy who has probably spent time in the presence of God in the temple himself, and his job is to serve God's people. And he sees this Jewish man, his, his fellow Jew, on the ground, broken, bleeding, possibly dead, and he crosses to the other side and walks around. The next person is a Levite. It says, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, a Levite is part of the same tribe as a priest, but isn't in that specific family. So the Levite's job was they would live among the Jews wherever they lived, and they would teach them the law. They were supposed to be experts in the law and teach everyone else how to follow it. These are like Bible college professors. This guy knew the law, as did the priest. And remember, Jesus didn't invent this whole love God, love your neighbor thing. So these guys would have been familiar with that whole thing. And so this Levite, who's an expert in the law, sees the man, knows exactly what the law says, and walks around him. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the old man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now we're going to pause that. We're going to skip over the rest of it um, because we're going to look at that next week. But a Samaritan, in order to understand, understand a Samaritan, you have to know their history a little bit. Samaritans were descendants of the Israelites whose families had intermarried with Gentiles. So they were considered half-breeds by the Jews. Um, And not only that, but when the Jews refused to let the Samaritans help them build the temple, they went and built their own temple. And then they took the the law of Moses and they tweaked it so that it, it said that the Samaritans were the people of God, not the Jews. And then they set up their own rival religion with its own temple, which by this point had been destroyed, um, and its own scripture. And they were considered um, not just ethnically impure, but also they were heretics, right? They, they, they used the same names and the same stories, but they got the essence of God wrong. So the modern mentality, everybody has their own kind of lines and their own kind of feelings, but these would be people who use the same stories, but say the wrong things about who God is and what God is doing and what God's plan is. And so you would not expect to get truth. So they would be like the way we typically think of Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, you know, groups where you say, yeah, they're, they're using the same names, but they're not making the same point. And, and they're not leading towards truth. They're leading towards something else because fundamental things have gotten changed about who God is and what he's doing. And so 
you would not expect a Samaritan, no matter how good he is at studying Samaritan law, to be good at keeping the law of Moses. He is, he is not only is he, it's not that just that he's uneducated, he's educated in the wrong direction. He's miseducated. And he sees the man and takes pity on him. We'll talk next week about what that pity looks like. But he is the one who actually responds to the man and helps him. And so at the end of the story, Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, what Jesus, Jesus gives us three examples, and he says, which one gets to check the box for loving his neighbor? The man says, well, the one who had mercy, the Samaritan. He just says, that's what it looks like. That's when you get to check the box, when you act like the Samaritan did. So now we have to ask, what does this parable teach us about the identity of your neighbor? And here's the thing. It doesn't tell us as much as we think, and so we've inserted other answers that aren't actually accurate for, and, and, and can lead us in the wrong direction. For instance, the most common answer that I found as I studied for this um, was that Jesus is expanding our definition of who our neighbor is so that our neighbors are everyone. And that's, that's what I would have said. Who's my neighbor? Everyone's my neighbor. Neighbor does not mean everyone. I'll give you two reasons why it doesn't mean everyone. Okay? Number one, if, God had met, if the command had been, love everyone, God would have said, love everyone. Because think about it. The word neighbor exists to differentiate one group of people from the rest of people. If I say neighbor, I definitely don't mean everyone because neighbor is specifically saying there's something that makes this group of people that they all have in common, that I, that's why I call them neighbor, as opposed to everyone else. There are my neighbors and there's everyone else. So if the Jews had been wrong for not loving their neighbor, for not loving everyone, because God told them to love their neighbor, that's God's fault for using the wrong word, right? Now, <laughs> if you look concerned, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to love everyone. We are supposed to love everyone, but we're not talking about the sum total of what Christians are supposed to do. We're talking about what do you do to check the box of this particular command. And this particular command is not about loving everyone. It's about specifically loving, loving your neighbor, whoever that is. Now, there's another problem. If we, if we use the everyone thing, the everyone definition, that will get us off track. Because how many of you know everyone? Just everyone. Anybody know everyone? Does anybody know everyone in America? You want to know everybody in Oregon? Marion County. Anybody know everyone in Turner? or whatever town you particularly live in. We don't even know everyone in our own town. How many think you have time to love everyone on your block, let alone your whole town? So what do we do if we're commanded to love everyone? We specialize. We say, oh, well, it's the church's job to love everyone, but I'm especially good at loving these kinds of people. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to love these kinds of people. I'm going to specialize, okay? Now, having a specialty is great. Casey and I have a friend who has a very specific passion for teenagers 
who are transgendered and homeless and addicted to drugs and need foster care. Very specific passion and calling, okay? And, and others are especially passionate about foreign missions or about the food bank, or about all these different things, particular groups of people. Those are great. Those are important. God gives us those passions for a reason. But that's not the check it, you're loving your neighbor box. Because that's not what the word neighbor means. Using the word neighbor is not giving you permission to pick who you want to specialize in. It's Jesus and God telling you a specific group to, to, to serve. And if we pick a specific group that's different from what God has commanded us to love, then we're not keeping that command. One of the other places where the command to love your neighbor comes up is in James, and he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. What he's saying is, you're supposed to love your neighbors, and if you only pick some of those neighbors, you're not keeping the command to love your neighbors. If you pick some and say, I don't need to love those other ones, that's, that's not, you can't specialize in a command God's given you. Specializing in a command he's given you is dis, partial disobedience. And partial disobedience is disobedience, right? Now, please don't take this to say that I'm going to command you, that I'm going to tell you you have to love like an exorbitant, more than a human being actually has emotional capacity for. Or, but what I'm saying is that we can't give ourselves permission to choose a subgroup of whoever God's commanding us to love. Pursuing your passion for a particular group is great, is important, is different from loving your neighbor. So that also means that loving neighbor does not mean the people you're comfortable with. You know, you say, hey, I, I love football, so I'm going to love my neighbors that love football. I'm going to love the people that share the same passions as me, the people who uh, it's easy for me to talk to. You know, I'm an introvert, so I'll love people by sending them notes you know, I'll love people by, um, you know, not, you know, we'll, we'll find our own groups, whatever your comfort, that's not what loving your neighbor means, which means loving your neighbor is going to force you to love outside your comfort zone. Now, here's another thing that we get wrong about the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Neighbor does not mean those people. Because one of the things that we'll think is, hey, there's, this uh, Samaritan, this, he was a, there was an ethnic conflict, so this parable is about prejudice. It's about overcoming prejudice and loving people, even though they're one of those people. But notice, in the examples that he gives, two of them are the same race as the man who got beaten up. The failure of the priest and the Levite was not due to prejudice. Right? They, they were also Jews, the Samaritan's the only one who stands out, and he's the one who loves. He was the only one who might have had the, the prejudice barrier. Now, the fact that Jesus uses the example of a Samaritan does show us that we are supposed to love across ethnic barriers and supposed to overcome prejudices. But there's tons of places in the Bible that tell us that. That's not what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because what will sometimes happen then is we'll say, okay, I'm going to love those people. Who, and we'll very, very, in a, in a good way, we'll say, we'll, you know, maybe do some genuine introspection and say, who are the people that I find it hard to love? I'm going to intentionally love them. That's a great idea. That's a very great idea. But if you have to drive across town to find those people or fly across the world on a mission trip to find those people, that's great. You don't get to check the neighbor box. 
Is loving your neighbor is something different than seeking out a particular group of people and saying, I'm going to love those people. Our love should be indiscriminate as rain. Jesus says that. Like, we should love the way God sends rain just on everybody. But the specific command to love our neighbor is not about seeking out a particular ethnic group, a particular people that we're uncomfortable with, any more than it's about seeking out people we are comfortable with. It's also not about seeking out non-believers. This is another thing that we do where we'll say, you know, you can, I can imagine uh, someone moving into my community and into our neighborhood, and I go and introduce myself to them, find out they're not a Christian, go, yes, okay, I'm going to bring this person to Christ. I am going to, I'm going to find out their name, I'm going to bring them a casserole, I'm going to invite them to church, I'm going to do all these things, I'm going to show them love so that they will come to love Jesus. And then someone else moves down, to, moves onto my street and find out, oh, this is the worship pastor at a big church in Salem. Okay, nice to meet you. They're already loved, right? They're a believer. They're They're good. Or, I really don't like that particular church, so... But we think, no, no, I'm loving my neighbor as a way to bring them to Christ, so that's what I'm going to focus on. The thing is, loving your neighbor is not an evangelism tool. Because again, notice, of the three people that Jesus uses in the example, the man, the priest, and the Levite are all believers. It, there was no evangelism involved in the priest or the Levite helping that man on the ground. It was actually the fact that they were believers should have been one of the reasons that made them want to help them. But they didn't. And it's the man who's a part of a different religion altogether who shows love. And I think Jesus does that to humble us. Kind of like when we talked about the Magi. Now the Magi were some completely different religion and they were the ones who, they, they showed Jesus more worship than, than the, king of the, the, you know, the reigning king of the Jews at the time. Jesus' humbliness by saying, this guy who doesn't have the truth did it right. So it's not about evangelism. And last, neighbor does not mean people in need. Because here's one of the other excuses we use. Um, When I find my, my neighbor, we don't really get along. So if I find him in a ditch beaten up by robbers, I will help him. But until then, he doesn't really need my help. So I'll, I'll wait until there's a real need, right? And we reserve our love or our intentionality with our neighbors for times of great need. The problem is, that's not what, what Jesus is getting at. He uses an extreme example in order, to, basically Jesus is speaking in all capital letters when he tells this story. Everything is exaggerated, right? The, what's happened to the man is an extreme example of a person in need. The fact that the guy who does it right is a Samaritan is an extreme example of a, to make it very clear that it's the, the Samaritan's actions, not his education or his background or his identity, that make him a good neighbor. It is not about just helping people when there's an emergency. Because notice, that's not the context of the original command. The original command, when God gives the law, it's much more suburban. It's mu- it hits much closer to home. Remember what he says. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among, among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. In this case, lo- it's not about helping someone out who's been beaten up and left on the side of the road. It's about not holding a grudge against person who, a person who won't stop their dog from barking at all hours during the, in the night. Or who plays their music too loud. Or doesn't mow their lawn often enough. Like, that's what the law is actually about. The law is about 
our relationships with each other, how we treat each other, and whether we bear grudges or whether we love each other and look out for each other. It's a very domestic example. It's, it's a very domestic example. That's not, so loving your neighbor doesn't mean just loving people who are in obvious distress. So what does loving your neighbor mean? Well, the word in Greek and in English mean the same thing. The same thing you'll find in Webster's Dictionary. One living or located near another. After all, the three men in this example, what do they have in common? The only thing they have in common is that they came near to the man on the ground. Right? That is the only thing that they have in common is that they became neighbors. They entered the neighbor zone of this man. They became people located near this man. They were supposed to be his neighbors. That, Jesus doesn't actually change the definition of the word neighbor. He never does. That's not the point of the parable. Because you'll notice at the end, he actually changes the question. He has no intention of changing the definition of the word neighbor. He changed the focus of the question. Because what he does is he asks him, who acted like a neighbor? Who actually loved? All three of these guys were neighbors. Who actually loved their neighbor? That's what we're going to talk about next week, is what it looks like to love our neighbor, because that's what Jesus is more interested in. That's where he's going to challenge us. But when it comes to neighbor... You're just talking about the people who live next to you. The people who live next door. The people who work in the cubicle next to you. The people who work behind the counter at the convenience store that you frequent. The people you run into every day. That's your neighbor. Those are the people you're supposed to love. And so we don't actually need to be taught who our neighbor is. You learned that when you learned the definition of the word. What we need to be asking is, are you actually loving your neighbor? Are you actually loving your neighbor? You see, what happens is, what happens is we will use these intellectual gymnastics to get around loving our neighbor. It's really challenging to love our neighbor because uh, G.K. Chesterton has this great quote. He says, you make, your, uh, you make your enemies, you make your friends, God makes your next-door neighbor. Your next-door neighbor could be anybody. In your comfort zone, out of your comfort zone, like you, unlike you, they could have everything in common with you, nothing in common with you. Unless you own the property on either side of you, you don't get to control it. And so that, they could be anybody and so we will find these ways to get out of loving our neighbors. So that's why we want to redefine neighbor as everyone. Because my, this is a real example. My dad was a youth pastor, and in a church he was at, there was this real understanding that they were going to do everything they could to fund missions in Africa, but they better not let African-American kids in the youth group. Actually, I mean, that, that was a... Think about it. We have Christians have been American Christians have been funding missions in Africa like as long as we've been funding missions. So all discrimination that has happened in American churches has been while we were sending money to help Africans in Africa. This is this is what we do. We'll be very comfortable loving people in other places as long as it keeps us from having to love our neighbors. If I can do that instead, 
And so I say, we absolutely should fund missions. That is incredibly important. But understand what we're doing. When you fund missions, you're not loving your neighbor. You are helping a missionary to love their neighbor. Right? A missionary who's gone out to seek new neighbors. That is important for us, but that doesn't get you off the hook of loving the people you actually encounter every day. And ultimately, this loving your neighbor is at the very core of what God is doing with his people and why he came, why Jesus came to save us. Remember last week we looked at this verse, it says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus came to save you, not so he could put you on the shelf to keep you in mint condition, but so he could use you in the place where he's put you. Do you understand that God saved you? Part, one of the reasons God saved you was to reach your neighbors. And not just to convert them, but to actually bless them. God saved you as a conduit to bless the people around you. That's the mission. So God's plan is to build up a family of people who love their neighbors around them no matter who they are. God has put you where you are to love the people that you run into. It's not an accident. That's the brilliance of the command to love your neighbor is it lets God decide who you're going to love. You want to love the people God wants you to love? Love the people he sends you. Love the people he's planted right next to you. And this means that whatever else your calling may be, it definitely includes loving your neighbor. If you are called to reach the homeless who live under bridges in Salem, that is great. Do that. Do that passionately and love your neighbor. If your, if your outreach is to be involved in our food bank, that's great. Get involved in the food bank and then go home and love your neighbor. Whatever you're called to do, that's why this is a key command at the top with love God. The two things you got to do, love God, love the people he puts in your life. Now, that's a tall order, and maybe some of you are thinking of some neighbors going, Phew. but there is an encouraging note to this. This is another verse that we looked at last week. It says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is a long way of saying that as a church, we are in this together. This is who we are. We are a family of people who are each called to love our neighbors, and we are helping each other to do that. I don't know about you, but I cannot do that on my own. I need people to challenge me. I need people to learn from. I need people to work alongside with, to worship with. I need a family to do this with. And that's who we are. And that's why God draws us together, is to be a body of people who are equipped to love our neighbors. I want this to be a very practical thing that we're doing. I don't want this to be an intellectual exercise in being able to say good things about loving our neighbors. So one, what we're going to be doing this year is we are going to be being very, very practical about loving our neighbors. And step one starts today. Raise your hand if you can, if you can tell me the names of all your neighbors, the eight closest residents to you. I know... <laughs> Couple, tell me their professions, their prayer requests. Okay. Here's my challenge to you. Learn your neighbor's names. 
As you leave, there is a table covered in magnets, refrigerator magnets that look like this. There's also a sign-up sheet for our small group classes. I want you to grab one of these, put it on your refrigerator, and I want you to fill it in. Now, most of us do not live... Yeah, I don't know of anybody who lives in an exact grid like that, especially if you're in an apartment, it doesn't look like that, but your eight closest neighbors, learn their names and pray for them. That's your challenge. Take this home. I've learned that Sharpie works better than ballpoint pen. But Casey and I have this about halfway filled out now. We've had it up for a month. It's harder in the winter. You get fewer opportunities to talk to people. Um, But learn your neighbor's names. Please grab one of those magnets and start there. Because it's hard to love people you don't know. If you don't know them, then you do have to wait till they're beat up in a gutter. The second challenge that I have for you is to come to our all-church class. That's going to start next week for three weeks. And we're going to have a very practical conversation about us as a congregation in the place where we're located and what it's going to look like for us to love our neighbors. And then once that's over, we're going to go into our small groups, our, our small group session that goes throughout the, the spring. And every once in a while, we're going to take a break from that to hear, hopefully to hear from members of our community tell us about what we can do to love our community. But this is what, what we are doing as a church to help equip you to love the people who live next to you, whoever they are. You in? What? (laughs) It's tough, isn't it? It's okay, you just heard about it. But this is what we're called to do and who we're called to be. And I'm excited to go down this journey with you because I do feel like this is where God has been leading us since at least as long as I've been here. I'm certain it's been before me, but um, because this church has been on a trajectory. But I feel like we are in a place where we can really put legs to what we've been doing and who we've been becoming. I'm really excited about what this is going to look like. As we 